0: We're very, very pleased this evening to welcome Reverend Michael Dowd. He is one of the most popular speakers in Unitarian Universalist circles and beyond. Since April of 2002, Michael and his wife, Connie Barlow, who is also a Unitarian Universalist and a science writer, have lived entirely on the road, delivering talks at more than 300 Unitarian Universalist congregations, summer camps, and ministers' retreats as well as for other religious and secular groups. Their work was featured as the cover story of our national membership magazine, The UU World, in the spring of 2006. Michael is the author of Thank God for Evolution, a book endorsed by five Nobel Prize winning scientists and religious leaders across the spectrum. His book and ministry were also featured in a 2008 issue of the New York Times Magazine. Michael and Connie support their ministry mostly by selling books and DVDs. We encourage you to visit the tables out front uh, in the foyer, and we also welcome you to uh, stay afterward if you would like. We will have some food in the back and and more chance for um, conversation with Michael. So thank you very much for being here, and I'm going to turn it over to Reverend Michael Dowd.
1: (sighs) (laughs) At, uh, At about 12.30 today... I called from uh, south of Houston, and I said, "How long does it take to get here?" And I was thinking it took three hours, and the response was, "Oh, at least five hours." <laughs> we weren't fully packed up, so we've been just like zipping and, and. I apologize for. And then I thought the program started at seven, not six thirty. So I'm delighted to see you all. My my program this evening is based on some of the core points that I make in my book called "Thank God for Evolution." how the marriage of science and religion will transform your life in our world. Specifically, what I'll be focusing on this evening is what I consider, what Connie and I both consider really good news, to use religious language, the gospel or the great news, according to science. Like, what does science tell us that's inspiring, both collectively for us as a species and personally? How can an evolutionary worldview help us to have lives that thrive, so that we can know joy in ways that are difficult or challenging without an evolutionary worldview. I don't know if you all saw the side of our van. We've got the Jesus and Darwin fish kissing with hearts between them. We get some interesting looks in this part of the world. In fact, the last time that we were in uh, Lawrence, Kansas, a biology professor looked at the side of the van, and he goes, oh, great, you just piss everybody off. Sometimes seems that way. Here we are in front of the Creation Museum. You know the the, uh, the new Creation Museum just south of Cincinnati, where they believe that juvenile dinosaurs were on Noah's Ark. <laughs> they had a security guard watch us for two and a half hours the whole time we were there. <laughs> you don't know about these radical evolutionaries, you know. Connie's a science writer who's so written four science books. From Gaia to Selfish Genes and Evolution Extended are both MIT Press books. Uh, the Ghosts of Evolution was Amazon.com's top recommended science book for three months when it came out in 2001. This one here, Green Space, Green Time, The Way of Science, was featured on the cover of the UU World uh, 10 years ago. Uh, those of you that aren't Unitarian Universalists, if that's any of you, that's the national membership magazine of, of the Unitarian Universalist Association. I'm actually married to somebody who's been on the cover of the UU World twice. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Have any of you seen this image yet? This is one of my favorite images of all time. It's an uncolored, touched-up photo from the Cassini mission. We sent a spaceship on the other side of Saturn looking back towards the Earth and towards the Sun. In fact, the Sun is directly behind Saturn. This is a solar eclipse. You can see a little piece of the Sun right there. And see this little dot right there? That's planet Earth. We're looking through the rings of Saturn and able to see Earth in the distance. Talk about a perspective shift. (laughs) Anybody know the name of this galaxy? Exactly. It's Andromeda Galaxy. It's kind of what the Milky Way would look like if we could get outside the Milky Way and look back at it. It's our closest neighbor galaxy. It's 2 million light years away. That is, we're seeing this not as it is now, but as it was 2 million years ago. Because it's taken light, traveling 11 million miles a minute, 2 million years to reach our eyes. And this is our closest neighbor. In fact, if you didn't know that this was Andromeda Galaxy, you really should get to know your neighbors. (laughs) This is known as the Hubble Deep Field photo. They took the Hubble Space Telescope and focused on a little itty-bitty patch of sky that was so small, none of the ground-based telescopes could see anything. It was completely black. In fact, if you took an eight-foot-long straw, okay, you know like a straw that you drink a milkshake or a soda pop out of that's eight feet long and you look through it? That's how much a little bit of sky the Hubble focused on for 10 days, taking pictures in one little spot for 10 days. And this is the image that showed up. Now, this here, this here, and this here are all stars in the Milky Way galaxy. But every other dot, no matter how large, no matter how small, are all galaxies. Like Andromeda, but some of these are 9 billion or 10 billion light years away. That is, we're seeing them not as they are now. We have no idea what they look like now. We're seeing them as they were 9 or 10 billion years ago. The universe is said to be 13.7 billion years old. Now, I say 2 million light years away, some of these are 10 billion light years away. Somebody tell me, what's the difference between millions, billions, trillions, and zillions? Anybody? Yeah, Yeah, a lot, right, exactly. A bunch of zeros. I mean, we can't feel the difference between these numbers because they're literally astronomical. Our survival and reproduction never hinged on paying attention to millions and billions, so we don't do so very well. I'm going to offer a way for you to think about millions and billions, and I promise you, if you're like me, you'll never think about millions and billions quite in the same way again. Check this out. A million seconds is 12 days. Okay, million seconds, 12 days. A billion seconds is 31 years. Did you get that? (laughs) The difference between 12 days and 31 years is the difference between a million and a billion. Trust me on this one, folks. Billionaires are not the same species as millionaires. <laughs> and, and did you know that now as a nation, we're over $10 trillion in debt? Let's not go there. <laughs> I love this quote from Lewis Mumford. He says, Every transformation of humanity is rested upon deep stirrings of the intuition whose rationalized expression amounts to a new vision of the cosmos and the nature of the human. So that's really what I'm going to be talking about this evening is a new vision of the cosmos and the nature of the human that science is giving us. Now, one of the things that I've been criticized for over the years is trying to cram too much stuff into an evening program. So I'm not going to do that. Tonight, I'll take the last seven or eight minutes and I'll describe the books and DVDs that we have. So if you want to go more deeply into these ideas, you can know what you might be interested in. But tonight, all I'm going to do is introduce one distinction one discovery, and one example of the realizing of religion. That is where we take some religious ideal that often people think about in an unnatural or supernatural or otherworldly sense and shows how it's real for everybody everywhere because it's not about believing in something otherworldly. It's about what we all know through our experience. I give a lot of examples of these in my book, but I'll be doing a major one in the Western world tonight. Now, the distinction that I want to offer is the distinction between day language and night language. Day language reflects our daytime experience, and night language reflects our nighttime experience. And as we all know, the two are very different. We do things at night that we just can't do during the day, or we wouldn't do. We fly. We turn into other creatures, or we have conversations with boulders or with animals. We walk through walls. We do all kinds of things at night that could we do those same things during the day that we do at night, we would be having supernatural or miraculous experiences every day. But we don't call our dreams supernatural, nor do we call our dreams miraculous, although we do sometimes call them bizarre. But your dream is only bizarre if you judge your nighttime experience by daytime standards. When you're in the middle of a dream, it's not bizarre. It's just your dream, right? It's only if you judge it. In fact, the other night, I literally jumped, literally, (laughs) I don't know what it makes sense. In my dream, I jumped a hundred yards. I jumped an entire football field. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I bet you not too many people can do that. (laughs) And then I woke up. (laughs) Day language is just factual. But night language, in order for the dream to be inspiring, it needs to be interpreted. This is the meaning. This is where poetry, myth, symbol. And the story is what binds the two. There can be wide agreement on the facts, some agreement on the story, but there's usually strong disagreement in terms of what does it mean, what's the interpretation. This is objective. This is subjective. And, of course, a story carries a mix of the two. Here's another way of thinking about it. Day language is what's so. It's the facts. It's what's objectively real. It's publicly measurably true. Night language is what does it mean? What's the interpretation? It's what's subjectively real. It's personally and culturally truthful. And our experience as humans is that both of these are essential. Did you know that if you try to keep a mammal from dreaming, will die? All mammals must dream. If you try to keep a human person or a horse or a wolf or any an elephant, any mammal, if you keep a mammal from dreaming, they'll die. We don't even know why. We have to dream. And as I said, we dream in a whole different reality. All cultures, there's not a single culture anywhere in the world that doesn't have a creation story that explains the big questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where's everything going? And why we are special as a people? All cultures have these. There's hundreds, maybe thousands of creation myths, creation stories. And they all use a blend of day and night language. For example, you know that you're in the realm of night language if what you're reading about or what you're hearing is something that could happen to any one of us at night but isn't likely to happen to us during the day. For example, like a talking snake in a garden. Snakes talk to us at night in our dreams, right? That's not a big deal at night. But if you were to leave here tonight and you were to to go to your car and a snake met you at the door to your car and started talking to you, my hunch is probably the first thought that would cross your mind is, okay, who slipped me the LSD? I mean, we don't tend to have experiences of talking snakes during the daytime. But that doesn't mean that story's not true. It means that story may be speaking cosmological truth. That is, it may be saying something true about the nature of reality and our relationship to it. And we trivialize it if we try to take it literally. We miss the meaning. About a year ago, there was a woman... <clears throat> Who is a, she said she was a biologist, and she said I was trying to read to my five-year-old daughter a few nights ago. She said, and um, about I decided I was going to read some nonfiction. And she said, about about a half uh, half a minute, thirty seconds or so into the into the, her reading, her daughter stopped her, and she said, No, 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 mommy, that's a daytime book. She said, Read me a nighttime book, mommy. Kids have a sense. There's a difference out of the mouths of babes. Okay, imagine that you lived in the Pacific Northwest, which is where this picture was taken. This is eastern Washington. 500 years ago, how would you describe how this boulder got there? See, by having a neocortex part of our brain, we will always interpret our experience. We are always going to make meaning of our experience. In fact, even if you say something's meaningless, you're making it mean nothing. We are meaning-making animals. And so anything this interesting was going to demand some story, some interpretation, some meaning. And 500 years ago, depending upon your culture or your tribe, right, you'd have different stories, but my hunch is they probably would have boiled down to God did it. Now, one culture might imagine God as an eagle that dropped it from the sky or a turtle that brought it up from the ocean or a loving father or a king that brought it in on a chariot or whatever. I mean, different cultures use different analogies and metaphors to describe the nature of ultimate reality or ultimate creativity or that which brought everything into existence. But God did it probably would have been the way most cultures would have talked about how that boulder got there 500 years ago. Well, then in 1921, J. Harlan Bretz, a geologist, started noticing interesting geological features like this. He also noticed what's called the channeled scablands, where all the topsoil has been washed away for 30 feet down to the bedrock lava. In fact, there's no topsoil at all here. It was all washed away. And it ate out these caverns, these coolies. This is, this is lava, or, you know and, and this is known as dry falls. When it had water flowing over it, it was three times the size of Niagara Falls. But there's no more water anywhere near there. Where'd it go? Where'd it come from? And J. Harlan Bretz proposed in 1921 that the only way to make sense of these was that giant cataclysmic floods must have occurred. Not one of them, but many of them. And nobody took him seriously until the late 1950s and early 1960s when some younger geologists over near Missoula, Montana started writing papers and noticing that these these shoreline marks on the side of mountains outside of Missoula, Montana. Now, Missoula, Montana, there's no major body of water anywhere near Missoula, Montana. But these are clearly shoreline marks. And then these long rolling hills in western Montana and the only way to, I mean, yeah, in western Montana, and the only way to make sense of all these geological features, right, J. Harlan Brettz had proposed it in the 20s, but it wasn't until 1961 with the advent of aerial photography. Once we could get 10,000 feet up in an airplane and take pictures looking down, it was as obvious as a walk on the beach what these long rolling hills were. They were ripple marks, giant ripple marks, three stories tall, In fact, the channel Scablands, you can see from satellite photos. And now there's not a geologist anywhere in the world that would debate how all these features came to be. 17 times in the last 2 million years, the ice sheets have come south and the ice sheets have gone back. Okay, 17 times the glaciers have come south and the glaciers have gone back. And every time the glaciers have come south, they would carry boulders from Canada. They would also block the Clark Fork River creating this humongous reservoir of water. In fact, they estimate that the amount of water that got caught here was larger than Lake Huron and Lake Erie combined. And then when it was 2,000 feet deep, it broke the ice dam, because, of course, ice floats, right? So when the pressure was enough, it broke the ice dam, and within 48 hours, all of this water would rush to the Pacific Ocean. These are the channeled scab lands where it washed away all the topsoil. It couldn't get out to the Pacific here, so it it, it uh, dropped a lot of silt south of Portland in the Willamette Valley, which is why there's such a good topsoil there now. And within 48 hours, all this water would go to the Pacific. It blocked up again, filled up again, and this happened dozens of times, each glacier. So, 500 years ago, how'd that boulder get there? God did it. 40, 45 years ago, geologists started saying, no, God didn't do it. It happened through natural causes. And what we're now finally able to realize is that these are different ways of pointing to the same fundamental process. The words God and evolution are pointing to the same divine creative process. Both answer the question, how did we get here? How did everything get here? One uses the night language of religion, the other the day language of science. And of course, one's a whole lot more specific how it happened measurably. Arguing whether it was God or evolution that created everything is like debating whether it was me or my vocal cords that produced this sentence. Or like quarreling over whether it was Gaia or plate tectonics that created the oceans and the mountains. Such silly and largely unnecessary confusion will remain the norm until we distinguish and value both day and night language all right here's another example imagine that you live 500 years ago before we had microscopes and somebody that you knew and loved had an infection like this or like this how would you talk about it how would you think about it what would you say you would have had some way of talking about this and my hunch is right in fact not my hunch let me say this factually. Let me ask a question. Would you say it was difficult to understand infection before we had microscopes or impossible? Exactly. Not just difficult, impossible. To have a day language, factual, natural understanding. I mean, we would have had some understanding, of course. There would have been some meaningful night language way of talking about this, absolutely. But it couldn't have been factually, naturally, measurably true until we had microscopes to see bacteria. In the same way, imagine trying to understand the large-scale structures of the universe before telescopes, before we could even see other galaxies. See, it's not just difficult to understand the structure of the universe without telescopes. It's impossible. In the same way, Connie and I suggest that it's not just difficult to truly understand ourselves and our world, But it's impossible to truly understand ourselves, our world, or what's needed for humanity to survive and thrive in the coming decades. And I realize this is a bold claim, but I think it's true, that we will not know how to move forward into a just, healthy, sustainably life-giving future if we lack an evolutionary worldview. It's not a surprise that America is not leading the world with regards to our response to climate change, when one in three Americans believe these are the end times anyway, so why bother? In fact, when you think about how recently humans emerged out of the body of life, okay, Earth has been around for, you know, 4.5 billion years. Humans have been around for 3 million years at most. So that's like a geological blink of an eye. And so this picture, from a deep time perspective, this isn't so much a picture of a human being looking at the Earth. More accurate way to talk about this is this is one of the first times that Earth became, or Gaia became complex enough that a piece of itself could get off of itself and look back at itself. This is Earth looking in the mirror. What I'm suggesting is that it's also impossible to appreciate the this world, the meaning and magnificence of religious concepts, if we lack a deep time worldview, If we don't understand how the major complexities in life have occurred, we're going to have a trivial understanding of religious insights. Because we'll keep taking the night language of religion and keep trying to interpret it in a day language way. So we'll expect the second coming of Christ to be a 6 foot, 180 pound man coming down magically on the clouds. And all the true believers are going to fly up to meet with him. That's a trivializing of that understanding. Okay, let me slow down. So the major distinction that I offered is the distinction between day language and night language. The major discovery is what I call nested emergence. And Connie and I have delivered programs in over a thousand to a thousand different groups in the last seven years. And I've done programs with evangelicals, with Buddhists, with Quakers, with Mennonites, with tons of Catholic and Protestant Christians, tons of Unitarian Universalist churches, atheists, I've done lots of different groups, and you know, and nobody debates the nested, emergent nature of creativity. Subatomic particles within atoms, within molecules, within cells, within organisms, within planets, within galaxies. is At all nested levels, like nesting dolls, every level can create. Every level can bring something new into existence that didn't exist before. Stars are creative. In fact, when I speak on Sunday mornings at Unitarian Universalist churches, I like to say... This morning's scripture reading is from cosmologist Carl Sagan. And it's the way he ends his Cosmos series. He says, we are the local embodiment of a cosmos grown to self-awareness. We have begun to contemplate our origins, star stuff pondering the stars. See, our bodies are made of stardust. Now remember before when I said we can't not interpret and our interpretation always carries a positive or a negative spin. So to say that we are stardust is a positive spin. Somebody who's a pessimist might say, and it would be legitimate to say, "We're just the nuclear waste of dead stars." <laughs> it's also true. <laughs> now the nest. Now see, I've got these nested all separated out, but in reality, they're all nested inside of each other, and we are part of the process. We can't get outside the whole of reality to examine it. So we have to use analogies and metaphors to describe the nature of ultimacy or the nature of the whole. And of course, people living in different parts of the world would have reflected on different plants, different animals, different terrain, and different climate. So they naturally would have used different metaphors to describe the nature of ultimacy. And, I mean, if we on this side of the room had never experienced sheep, the Lamb of God wouldn't be a part of our tradition. You know? If we over here had never experienced the political reality of a king, the kingdom of God would be a completely foreign concept. You know, we'd tell stories of lotus blossoms or whatever is a part of our experience. So all religions make sense given the different bioregions and cultures in which they emerge. This doesn't mean they all make sense if you interpret their core doctrines as true in a day language way. But if you interpret their core doctrines as, as, as saying something true in a night language, metaphorical way, they all make deep sense. Now, the nested emergence part is that there's a trajectory to complexity. We see greater complexity, greater interdependence, and greater cooperation at larger and wider scale over time. In other words, ultimate creativity, that which brought everything into existence, didn't merely exist exist before the universe and create everything the way a potter makes a pot or a carpenter makes a table. That divine creativity exists throughout the entire universe in a nested, And in an emergent sense, we see complexity, greater complexity over time. For example, the universe as a whole has gone from simple atoms to more complex atoms, to molecules, to more complex molecules, to creatures, to more complex creatures, to societies and more complex societies. And it's one unfolding emergent process that we grow out of. We emerge out of this process. Human beings, this is one of the most important things I'm going to say tonight, Human beings are literally the universe after some 14 billion years of unbroken evolution now becoming conscious of itself. We're the universe becoming aware of itself literally. We didn't come into the world we grew out of it. In the same way that apples grow out of an apple tree humans grow out of the universe we grow out of the planet. Brian Swim is a Professor of Cosmology in California. He's got these two great quotes. He says, uh, Four billion years ago, the earth was molten rock, and now it sings opera. Right? Earth was once molten rock, now it sings opera. And nobody put anything here. Like when the Bible, like Genesis 2-7, speaks of God forming us from the dust of the ground and breathing into us the breath of life, that's a true story. It's a traditionally sacred way, what Joseph Campbell would say a mythic way. It's a night-language way of describing the fact that we grow out of the dynamics of the planet itself, and it's the divine creative reality of the whole or ultimate reality that makes it possible. I mean, how could Moses have said it in any other way, assuming he wrote that? Here's another quote from Brian Swim that I think you'll like, although this one, I gotta say, is a little little more audacious. He tries to take the entire 14 billion year history of the universe and sum it up in two sentences. He says, You take a great cloud of hydrogen gas and you just leave it alone, and it becomes rose bushes, giraffes, and human beings. And folks, this is not a belief. This is considered factual knowledge. This is what 97, 98% of the scientists of the world would agree with. And as as this scientific knowledge is integrated into our religious traditions, we will see that our own core insights, our own core doctrines, no matter what the religion may be, are larger, more meaningful, and have more of this world reality. That's what I mean by the realizing of religion. I'll say more about that in a few minutes here. Here's a visual image of this greater complexity, greater interdependence, and greater cooperation at larger and at wider scale in the pre-human world and then also in the human world. At one time, for example, we cooperated among families and clans and everybody else was the threat. And then with speech, with words, we could cooperate at the scale of an ethnic tribe and all of the tribes were the threat. We keep finding ways of cooperating at larger and wider spheres. And this is not controversial. There's no debate in the scientific community about this way of talking about directionality. See, there are some ways of talking about evolutionary directionality that are not accurate scientifically. This is not teleology. This is not saying that there's some intelligence outside the system that pre-programmed it or figured it out or is pulling strings and making things go in a particular way. No, we don't have evidence of that. What we have tremendous evidence of is that the universe itself is creative And from the perspective of now looking back, we see greater complexity, interdependence, and cooperation at larger scale. There's no scientist in the world that would just say, this came before this, or this came before this, or this came before this. In fact, on two of my DVDs, I spent about 45 minutes on this directionality. Human cooperation once existed only within small family groups. Cooperative organizations expanded to produce multifamily bands, then tribes, then agricultural villages, cities, and empires, then nation states, and now some forms of economic and social cooperation span the globe. Now, where the gospel is here, or where the good news is here, is that we have some very keen insight into how this has occurred. which makes moving forward somewhat of a no-brainer. Formerly independent, or in some cases competitive entities, face some crisis, some challenge, some chaos. It turns out that chaos is the most important driver of creativity. It's really interesting. And so these formerly independent or maybe competitive entities face some crisis, and they figure out or stumble into the awareness that they can survive together better than they can apart. And when they've aligned the self-interest of the parts with the well-being of the whole that the parts are part of, a new level of complexity emerges. Now let's call these tribes. Now you've got a number of tribes interacting, and they face some crisis, some challenge, some chaos. They figure out how to align the self-interest of each tribe with the next level of complexity, and a chiefdom or a kingdom emerges and we see this over and over again in the body of life both in the prehuman world and in the human world this is how prokaryotic bacteria created the eukaryotic cell this is how eukaryotic cells created multicellularity this is the fundamental pattern of complexity because each level it stores and shares information differently at each each level of complexity until we see the entire history of the universe as scripture, and what I mean by scripture is guidance, and create laws and incentives that align the self-interest of people and organizations with the well-being of the body of life as a whole, that is our planet's self-interest, we will continue to toxify the air, water, and soil, drive other species to extinction, and be hounded by religious, political, social, and economic crises. Now, confession time. (laughs) The only reason that this word is here is that I don't want to be too arrogant. I personally think these probably are the two most vital questions, but let's just say perhaps the two most vital questions for the 21st century. The first is this. How can we further the evolutionary impulse that that is what the whole of reality has been up to for billions of years, and govern ourselves as a species, locally, regionally, nationally, and globally, so that there are real and effective incentives for individuals, corporations, and nations to cooperate and serve the common good, they each benefit by doing so, and equally effective incentives for them not to cheat, dominate, pollute, or otherwise harm the common good. In other words, how do we create laws, taxes, and moral incentives to successfully motivate individuals and groups to do the just and ecologically beneficial thing and to not do the unjust or ecologically harmful thing? See, folks, this isn't rocket science. Bacteria figured out how to do this twice without brains. (laughs) Maybe that's the problem. (laughs) And see, until we do this... We're going to have good moral people that read their Bible every day, that go to church every Sunday, that send their kids to the best colleges and universities possible to learn how to do the worst thing best. We've got to redesign the system, specifically economics and governance. Now fortunately, there's some major economic and political and governmental people that get this. But in democratically elected societies, how do we get enough of us to get this, to vote it into being? Well, that's question number two. How can the epic of evolution, that is our common creation story, be told in a multitude of personally and collectively meaningful ways, sacred, mythic, religious ways, so that it inspires billions of human beings with different worldviews to really want and then successfully manifest the above vision? My life is devoted to these two questions. If we run into each other 30 years from now, should we still be alive? My life is still going to be devoted to these two questions. As evolution proceeds, living things will increasingly coordinate their actions for the benefit of the group because it will be in their self-interest to do so. Cooperators will inherit the earth and eventually the universe. This is a fabulous book that you can download. The whole thing for free as a PDF download if you just put evolution's arrow in Google. We normally sell it, but we're out. Okay, so let's shift from how this is good news collectively, like how this is good news for us as a species in evolutionary worldview, to what's the good news personally? How can this perspective that is understanding our evolved nature in terms of our brain, how can this transform people's lives and relationships. What's the good news evolutionarily for us personally? Evolution provides a much more realistic understanding of our instincts, the human condition, than was ever possible before. This is part of, partly where we go where I talk about the realizing of ancient religious understandings. And we understand this not through sacred texts. We understand this through what reality is revealing through the entire range of sciences, specifically evolutionary psychology and evolutionary brain science. The two leading evolutionary theorists in the world today are Edward Wilson, that's E.O. Wilson at Harvard, and David Sloan Wilson. They're actually not related, but they do write together occasionally. And David Sloan Wilson's got this great quote. He says, our unique attributes evolved over a period of roughly 6 million years. They represent modifications of great ape attributes that are roughly 10 million years old. And primate attributes that are roughly 245 million years old. We also harbor vertebrate attributes that are roughly 600 million years old and attributes of nucleated cells that are perhaps 1.5 billion years old. If you think it's unnecessary to go that far back in the tree of life to understand our own attributes, consider the humbling fact that we share with nematode worms the same gene that controls appetite. At most, our unique attributes are like an addition to a vast multi-room mansion. It is sheer hubris to think that we can ignore all but the newest rooms. We now have technology that allows us to see how the human brain is working while it's working. While somebody's thinking about their best friend or their worst enemy or there's somebody they're fantasizing about or some, you know, what they had for lunch today or some secret they've never told anybody. We can see, we've been able to map out where the brain, how the brain is processing that information, where the blood flows are, where the neurons are firing. And one of the things that we've come to see is that our brain does not show evidence that it was designed by an all-knowing, supreme, intelligent designer who knew exactly how to design the human brain for humans to thrive in the world that we have to live in. What our brain shows tremendous evidence of is that it evolved in an, or was created in an additive sort of way over millions of years. We've got the most ancient part of our brain, a more recent part, more recent still, and then the most recent part. The reptilian brain is the brain stem and the cerebellum. This is the part of the brain that you know when you fall and you catch yourself or you try to catch yourself and it happens faster than thought. It's like you just instinctually move to catch yourself. Sometimes it's pretty impressive. I mean, I know sometimes I've, I've fallen and it's like, whoa, that was pretty good. You know? It's like my, I didn't have to think about it. It happened instinctually. This is the part of the brain that's concerned with the basics of survival and then after puberty, reproduction. In fact, you could say that the reptilian brain really only cares about the three S's safety, sustenance, and sex. Or you could say what this part of the brain is really good at and really wants is just the five F's fight, flight, freeze, food, and copulate. Come on, I'm in a church. What do you expect? The old mammalian brain, the limbic system, this is, the, this is the, uh, the hippocampus, the amygdala, the hypothalamus. This is the part of the brain that comes into being with mammals. And it's all about feelings, emotions, bonding, kinship. Play is very important to mammals. You don't find reptiles playing in the way that you do mammals, all mammals. Also reciprocity. If I'm nasty to you, you're pretty much instinctually going to want to be nasty back. But if I'm kind and loving and generous to you, you're pretty much naturally going to want to be nice back. It's instinctual. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to have laws in place that we can't give politicians any significant gifts. Because even if this part of the brain thinks they won't feel indebted, this part of the brain can't not feel indebted. The new mammalian brain, the neocortex, only two new drives come into being with the neocortex. The drive to comprehend and the drive to predict. Now, comprehend and predict for what? Like, why would evolution produce an organ that was really good at comprehending and predicting? (laughs) So these parts of the brain can get what they want more effectively. It's why we are masters of self-deception. We are absolutely brilliant at rationalizing. Because I can deceive you even better if I've already deceived myself. And then the most recent part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobes, this is the part of the brain that's concerned with good judgment or poor judgment. It's the last to develop in young people. Parents know this. Car insurance companies know this. It can override these parts of the brain, but it won't override it unless there's some strong commitment, vow, declaration, and often community support. In fact, um, this uh, this part of the brain, uh, one of the reasons why young men under the age of 25 are so much more expensive to insure, because one of the things that we know about testosterone is that when testosterone rises, so does risk-taking. So if you get young men with a lot of testosterone, so they're taking a lot of risks without good judgment, it's not a surprise that men under the age of 25 are so much more expensive to insure. Now, I'm pretty much using day language, standard day language, to talk about this, right? Connie and I discovered about four years ago that if you want young people like high school students, college students, grade school students to learn this stuff and to think it's cool and to talk to their friends about it, day language ain't going to cut it. You need some night language. So we we've created some animals to help us out here. These are not our night language animals here. So we've got our lizard legacy, our fur little mammal, our monkey mind, and our higher porpoise. <laughs> <laughs> so again, the lizard legacy is safety, sustenance, survival, and then also after puberty, reproduction, or sexuality. For a little mammal, is bonding, emotions, kinship, play, and status. Um, also, notice there's a darker side and a lighter side. What I'm trying to get at there is that it's not just all warm fuzzies. There's something that happens in that part of the brain that can be very dangerous. It's what's called in-group, out-group mentality, which, which is we love and care and cooperate with our kind of people, but we can hate and demonize others. All cultures have sacred stories that tell us why we're supposed to cooperate about why we can hate and demonize others. And, of course, we've got stories doing the same thing. The monkey mind is a term that comes out of Buddhism. You know, the monkey jumps from branch to branch, eats a little fruit, eats a little fruit. It's like our rational, verbal part of the brain. We're rarely in the present moment for very long. Did you ever notice? We're thinking about the past. We're worried about the future. That's one of the reasons why our meditation and contemplative practices are designed to help bring that ongoing rational verbal part of the brain into the present moment a little bit more often. And then, of course, our higher purpose is our sense of higher purpose. It's our sense of God's will or our higher power or, you know, our commitments. In fact, if you ask a young person uh, or if you ask anybody to think about what they're most committed to, or if you ask a married person to think about their marriage vows while they're hooked up to a functional MRI machine, this is the part of the brain that will be stimulated. Now, the saving good news here, among other things, is that we can move beyond denial to appreciate the fact that we all have an unchosen nature. We all have inherited proclivities. We have aspects of ourselves that we didn't choose. We just find ourselves this way for really good evolutionary reasons. For example, who of us chooses to be attracted to foods that have sugars, salts, and fats? I'm glad nobody raised their hand. (laughs) Because anything so important to our survival isn't left up to conscious choice. It's hardwired. Because for 99% of human history, it wasn't easy to find sugar, salts, and fats. So having a craving for these things allowed our ancestors to survive long enough to reproduce. Yet today, it's very easy to find sugar, salts, and fats. Yet we still have these cravings. It's our unchosen nature. Did you know that there is a scientifically... uh, Actually, before I even say that, I can say with mathematical certainty that none of us in this room would be alive today If it weren't for the fact that some of our ancestors weren't really, really good at putting on weight and holding on to that weight through the harsh winters, through the droughts, through the lean times. In fact, those humans that couldn't do that got lost to the gene pool. And guess what? Our ancestors were so generous, they passed those genes on to us. (laughs) It's our unchosen nature. Did you know that there is a scientifically proven correlation between the amount of testosterone in the human organism, men and women, and how much that human being tends to take risks and how much they tend to think about sex? There's a woman, a friend of mine in California, this is a female. She was on hormonal therapy. She had to wear testosterone patches, right? And she told me, she said, after two days, she said, I couldn't stop thinking about sex. She said, is this what guys have to deal with? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) it is actually. But it's not just guys. See, women also have testosterone, and some women have a lot more of it than others. Now, typically, men have 20 to 50 times the testosterone that women do. But some women have a lot of testosterone. For example, my daughter is life's ever-present reminder to me that there's a wisdom larger than my ego at work. I was a peace advocate for most of my adult life. You know what my oldest daughter does in the world? She's a staff sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. Not only that, but my daughter is the second woman in U.S. history to be on the all-Marine wrestling team. That's right, my baby girl wrestles for the Marine Corps and kicks butt. (laughs) And her pacifist daddy is so damn proud of her. But here's the thing. Men and women both have a certain base level of testosterone. Okay, We all have a certain base level of testosterone. But then, if we get promoted at work, or we get elected into public office, and I'm not even talking about governor of New York. (laughs) I'm talking about your school board. Or in any way where there's a rise in status, where people are looking up to you and admiring you where they weren't looking up to you before. I was going to say church council president but that's probably not a high esteem position right for all men and for about 40% women testosterone levels are going to go sky high and if it's a significant promotion it it could be it could be double or triple the amount so Remember before I said you can't not interpret your experience. You will always interpret your experience. So let's say you've got a great relationship to your spouse, okay? You've got a certain base level of testosterone. It's no problem. It's easy for you to stay in integrity. And all of a sudden, you get promoted at work. Or you get elected into public office. And all of a sudden, you got sex on the brain. Now remember, you're going to interpret it somehow. So what if you interpret that maybe something's wrong with your relationship to your spouse. After all, why would you all of a sudden be fantasizing or thinking about this other person? Or maybe you're filled with guilt and shame, and you interpret that the reason you're having these immoral thoughts is because your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother ate an apple because she was tempted by a snake in a garden. Or maybe you're a real spiritual person, and you pray and meditate a lot, and you interpret that it's God's will that you connect with Sarah Jane over here. In other words, how you interpret your experience is going to make an enormous difference in the quality of your life and the impact of your life on others. When I wrote my book two years ago, this was in the news. Now he's back in the news. (laughs) Ted Haggard, the president of the National Evangelical Association... That's a high-esteem position. A leading megachurch pastor, high-esteem position. Preaching boldly against gays and lesbians while seeing a gay massage therapist, and it turns out another guy on the side. And then, of course, our nation was obsessed for a year with President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. And before that, there was Jimmy Swagger and Jimmy Baker. Remember the televangelists, right, that fell to sexual scandal? When I wrote my book two years ago, this is what I said. I said, so long as religious and political leaders continue to ignore our evolutionary heritage, and thus do not put into place structures of support that can withstand the high dosages of testosterone that high status and power necessarily confer, then there will be no hope for a less calamitous future. Wasn't it Henry Kissinger who said the greatest aphrodisiac of all is? This is what he was getting at, folks. Now, I wrote this two years ago. What have we seen in the last two years? Well, we've got our governors of New York here, our foot-tapping senator, the mayor of Detroit, presidential candidate, and there's a couple of new ones that I didn't even have room to put in here. Like, isn't one of them from Louisiana? Yeah, better, right? And see, most of these guys believe in original sin but believing in a night language concept and knowing something true in a day language way is a very different thing what this means among other things is that we can expect to encounter difficulty with self and others in part because there's deeper drives now i need to say i am not saying please i don't need i, I want to be make sure i'm not misunderstood i'm not saying that the evangelical christians get to say the devil made me do it and we liberals get to say, my lizard legacy made me do it. No, I'm not saying that at all. Because it may not be your fault, but it absolutely is your responsibility. It's each of our responsibility. In fact, let me tell you a true story. When the New York Times Magazine did a, did a feature article on my book about six, seven months ago, they interviewed this 81-year-old guy that came to one of my programs in, in uh, northern Florida. This was at a Unitarian church. And he came up to me at the end of my sermon where I talked about this, the brain science during the church service, and he comes up to me, and this guy is vibrating. He's so excited. Now, remember, he's 81 years old. He comes up to me. He says, Michael, Michael, he said, I've got to tell you something I've never told anybody. I don't know about you. But when somebody who's 80 years old is going to tell me something they've never told anybody, I am all ears. (laughs) I said, please tell me. He said, in 1973, he said, I became the vice president of my corporation. Now, it turns out this is a huge corporation. It was a major promotion. He said, I had no idea that my life would be ruined. He said, in fact, until your sermon, I didn't know why. He said, now, let me tell you what happened. He said, I had been married for 13 years. He said, I had never betrayed my wife. In fact, it was easy for me to stay in integrity. I was was never even seriously tempted. He said, within six months of my promotion, he said, I had five affairs. None of them knew about each other. My wife didn't know about any of them. He said, it ultimately cost me my marriage. It cost me my job. And he said, I've been living with the guilt and the shame of this for 35 years. He said, I haven't told anybody until I'm telling you right now. And the amazing thing was, He was telling me loud enough that about a half a dozen of his parishioner friends could hear it. The shame was gone. In fact, he said, he said, I feel like I can let go of the boatloads of self-judgment and guilt and start cleaning the messes up. And he did, to his credit. Between Sunday morning, which is when I did the sermon, and Tuesday night, which is when I did the follow-up program, he called his ex-wife. He told me, he said, I was in tears. He said, I apologize for being such a deceptive, lying sack. Came back to integrity, and I found out two months later from his, from his roommate that his depression of the last 12 years had lifted. He wasn't even on the medication anymore. By coming back to in- integrity. To use Christian night language, he came back to Christ. He came back to integrity. Now, this was not a Christian. He was a humanist. But he told me, he said, it felt like a born-again experience. He said, it feels like I've got a new, a new lease on life. And here he was, 81 years old. There was a woman about a year ago sent us an email. She said, I could never understand my crazy, destructive drives, why I ate so much when I was full, and why I fell in love with the wrong men. With an understanding of evolution, it now all makes sense. See, one of the interesting things about women who are fertile or women who are in their childbearing years, women in the presence of high-status males, the women's testosterone levels goes through the roof. This is not true for all women, but it's true for about 85% of of, of women in childbearing years when they're in the presence of high-status males, because it makes sense. For millions of years, if you were a female of childbearing years, who were the males that you could trust to be able to protect your your offspring? The high-status males. Connie and I have two websites. The great generates about a quarter of a million hits a month. Uh, Connie's always adding new stuff there. And this one here is surrounded around my book and our traveling ministry. I'm going to circulate a couple of clipboards. If you put your name and email address down, I promise you two things. One is that you'll never get more than one email a month. And you can easily get off the list anytime you want. And, uh, and, uh, we don't give your email address out to anybody. I mean, think about it. What was there to be addicted to 10,000 years ago? What, were you going to run into some fermented berries? Hard liquor wasn't even invented till 300 years ago. And even in those cultures that had sacred substances, you know, to help people achieve altered states of consciousness, these were controlled by the elders. It's not like the teenagers had access to this stuff. And yet today, there's all these activities and substances, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, drugs, shopping, video games, all kinds of things that's so easy to be addicted to. Because our brain didn't evolve to deal with these things. I mean, 10,000 years ago, if you were a heterosexual man and some woman looked at you lustfully, you were probably supposed to act on it. Yet today, in the privacy of our own bedrooms and our offices and our cubicles and our little laptop computers, we can be exposed to images that our brain didn't evolve to deal with in a healthy way. It's not a surprise that we find internet pornography such a big issue. These are rock formations. And Connie took the pictures. <laughs> okay, here's a story of one young woman, a, 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 a teenager, having a conversion to evolution. Halsey Barlow is my wife's niece. Now, Halsey grew up in a very conservative Catholic family. Her mother and father listened to Rush Limbaugh every day. And she grew up, her parents rejected, her and mother especially, totally rejecting evolution. And Halsey went to nursing school, and her first semester in nursing school, she had to write a paper on Madagascan lemurs, and she had this, like, conversion. She said, I saw how beautiful evolution was. And then she started reading books on evolutionary psychology and brain science, some of the books that I list in my book, and she sent us this email. We call it The Parable of the Pickle Jar. She said, I now put everything into an evolutionary context it's almost become a reaction that when I encounter a situation, I think, okay, why am I feeling this way? How and why would my 780th great-grandmother react to this? (laughs) It doesn't even have to be anything significant. For instance, if I see one of my roommates snacking on my jar of pickles, I get this feeling in my stomach like, hey, back off. Those are mine, mine, mine. I want to be laid back and not care, but my instincts are so darn uptight. But knowing that I'm a selfish, status-seeking hornball only (laughs) motivates me to do things that say F you to my evolutionary roots, even though I really do love them. I absolutely love how imperfect and clumsy we are as humans. I mean, almost any situation can be laughed off if we only step back and take a look at why we feel the way that we do. I love it. I wouldn't want it any other way. Now, is this amazing For an 18-year-old to have this level of witness to her experience? Oh, this is cute. All right, just a reminder. The lizard legacy, for about 85% of us, when we get stressed out, some part of us has us walk over to the refrigerator. We open up the freezer, take out the ice cream, and think to ourselves, no bowl needed. (laughs) <laughs> All right that's the lizard legacy it says it's it's that part of us that's that that when we sometimes feel a little stressed out says food, find food because for ninety you know I mean for millions of years, if you were an animal and you were stressed out, you might need a lot of energy you didn't know when you were going to eat again, so eating made sense right and then of course, our monkey mind is always trying to figure things out figure things out right well. Connie does a program for, for grade school kids. She's got puppets. And she did a program for grade school kids in a, at a Unitarian church for first and second graders. And about a month later, this first grade boy comes home from school and says to his mom, says, Mommy, 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 we had a fire drill at school today. Now, try to remember your first fire drill ever. This is the kid's first fire drill in his entire life, right? So the mother, who sent us an email, which is how we know this, the mother said, well, tell me about it. What was it like? He said, oh, he said, I was so scared. He said, the bells were all clanging. He said, and we all had to go out to the street. He said, and I told myself, monkey mind, calm down. Lizard legacy, you're not hungry. (laughs) Monkey mind, calm down. Lizard legacy, you're not hungry. This is a first grader. Now, who's doing the witnessing? See, that's the amazing thing, is that even though this part of the brain isn't fully developed until the age of 23 to 25, in this first grade boy, it was enough developed because that's the part of the brain that does this witness capacity. It's the prefrontal cortex. Evolutionary psychology encourages compassion and cooperation because it explores what we all have in common, human universals. In fact, there was a woman at a Unitarian church in New Orleans when we were there last, last year who said she's, she was a neurobiologist, and she said, the more I learn about how the brain works, she said, the more compassion that I have for myself and others. She said, isn't it amazing and somewhat ironic that science is giving us access to this traditional spiritual virtue? I mentioned before that in evolutionary psychology, there's a thing called mismatch theory. That is, our instincts aren't matched for the world that we have to live in. Our instincts are matched for a very different world than the world that we today have to live in. Like the sugar, salts, and fats. It made sense that we have cravings for sugar, salts, and fats in that kind of a world. It doesn't make sense that we've got those cravings now, right? I mean, you would not expect a wolf or a bear, or an elephant to go counter to their instincts very easily, would you? And it'd be pretty tough for a wild animal to go counter to their instincts, right? You'd think. And they could probably do it on occasion, but it wouldn't happen easier often. Yet we are expected to go counter to our instincts almost every day, or sometimes many times in a day. Okay, I'm going to say something that's a little bit crass, okay? So I'm going to ask you to please forgive me ahead of time. Those of us that have been blessed or cursed with a particularly large amount of testosterone, our instincts are to mate it if it moves. (laughs) Yet if I act on my instincts, I destroy my marriage. My ministry goes down the tubes. I cause tremendous suffering to myself and huge suffering to others if I just act instinctually. So the question becomes, how can our instinctual energies serve our life and our mission and our marriages and what we're most committed to? And that's where this perspective offers more realistic hope than anything I have ever encountered. Because there is, given the nature of our brain, there is one sure path to freedom and joy. And only one sure path. And this is true no matter what your religion or your philosophy, there's only one way to have freedom and joy when we have the kind of unchosen nature that we have. And it's called the path of integrity. And what I mean by integrity isn't just being honest or following a code of law or rules or morals. It's being aligned with reality as reality really is. Not as you wish it was, but as reality really is. And in my book, I spend two chapters on what does it mean for us as a species? What does it mean to be in ecological and evolutionary integrity? That is, what does it mean to be aligned with the way reality really is? To use religious language, what does it mean to be right with God as a species? And from a personal perspective, what does it mean to be in integrity with regards to my family, my relationships, in my corporation, in the different circles we are? Now, since we're in a very conservative part of the country, I'm hoping that one of you or more can think of a Christian night-language way of saying the same thing. There's only one path to salvation, Christ. To say that there's only one path to salvation, Jesus Christ, is saying this in a day language, night-language reflection. In fact, I spend in my book, I talk about what it means to be in Christ-like integrity, and I try to build this bridge to traditional Christians. See, I forgot to say at the start, I used to be an anti-evolutionary fundamentalist. I actively opposed people who taught evolution. I had a small stack of tracts, and I would argue with anybody who thought the world was more than 6,000 years old. So I love speaking to evangelicals. I mean, it takes a lot of courage in this culture... To go to a meeting of strangers, to sit in a circle and say, Hi, my name is Michael. I'm a codependent. Or, Hi, my name is Michael. I'm an overeater or I'm an alcoholic. It takes a lot of courage to do that. What's true is, Hi, my name is Michael and I'm a human being with mismatched instincts. (laughs) See, it's true for all of us. It's not just true for the addicts and the codependents among us. It's true for all of us. And this removes the stigma. I love this one. The universe becomes self-conscious. Eat, survive, reproduce. Eat, survive, reproduce. Eat, survive, reproduce. Eat, survive, reproduce. What's it all about? And we wonder why we occasionally struggle with issues related to food safety and sex. Duh. interpreting the insights of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary brain science religiously, mythically. We vitalize our appreciation of ancient doctrines such as the fall and original sin. See, now we can understand in a realistic, this world realistic way, why it is that we and our loved ones struggle with unwanted habits and why our most important relationships can sometimes be so challenging. I mean, okay, remember trying to understand how that boulder got there before there was understood glaciers or how, you know, the nature of infection before microscopes or the structure of the universe without telescopes? Like, not just difficult, impossible, right? If you lived 2,000 years ago, how would you describe the nature of the fact that we all, I mean, you would have not had any understanding of our evolved brain. But what you would have known had you been paying close attention is what we all know through our experience, which is we all say, I'll do that. But we don't. We say, I'll never do that. But we do. We say, you can count on me for that. But they couldn't. Now, what's that about? Well, the fall of Adam and Eve, original sin are accurate night language intuitions about what we can now speak about in a day language, factual way. Until we come to see through sacred, deep time eyes, atheists and fundamentalists will continue to blame each other for the world's ills, Liberals and conservatives will keep trashing one another, and collectively will fail to see that enormous global challenges are divine evolutionary drivers guiding us to greatness. Let me conclude on this note here, and then we'll just take time for questions. I grew up Catholic. You can't get the Catholic out of me. This is my cosmic rosary. <laughs> I've got, I've got 269 of the major transformational moments in the history of the universe represented in beads. Each bead signifies some significant event in the universe story. Okay, don't worry, I'm not going to do it, but I can tell the entire universe story bead by bead. Right. And one of the things I have represented are the major catastrophes, the major extinctions. Mm-hmm. See, the universe is not just a friendly, happy, put on a smile, it's a nice day, it's all wonderful kind of place. There's chaos and destruction and breakdown and violence and extinctions. In fact, you can't even have a universe without this destructive, chaotic side. And yet one of the most hopeful things is that when we look at all the major catastrophes, all the major extinctions, is this unleashing of huge creativity, new possibilities, new opportunities, and in many cases couldn't have even been there without it. After every major extinction, we see this. I mean, I don't know about you, but in the current situation... This gives me a little bit of hope in the current economic situation. Because the primary driver for billions of years of creativity has been chaos and breakdowns and bad news. So, just to recap, the main points that I covered, the main distinction is day and night language, the discovery being nested emergence or complexities arrow. And the example of religion realizes that the fall and original sin are accurate night-language intuitions about what we can now speak about in a day-language way. No matter what our attempts to inform, it is our ability to inspire that will turn the tides. Tell me a creation story more wondrous than that of a living cell forged from the residue of an exploded star. Tell me a story of transformation more magical than that of a fish hauling out onto land and becoming amphibian, or that of a reptile taking to the air and becoming bird, or that of a mammal slipping back into the sea and becoming whale. Surely, the science-based culture of all cultures can find meaning and cause for celebration in its very own cosmic creation story. Do you know where I found that quote? That was on the cover of the UU World 10 years ago last month. And I was so blown out of the water, I was so impressed with that quote, I decided I'd track down and marry the author. (laughs) And that's a true story, folks. These are the two books of Connie's that we have with us tonight. Green Space, Green Time, The Way of Science. You could say The Spirituality of Science because it's how the evolutionary and ecological sciences can enrich your communion with the whole of reality. It's like a natural theology or a natural spirituality. This is one of the leading books in what's called Religious Naturalism. This is the best collection of short essays, uh, articles uh, 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 in in this movement, some of the best science writing in the last 150 years on the whole question of meaning and direction in the universe. Connie has edited this Evolution Extended. This is an MIT Press book, but we've now self published it. It's a fabulous collection of some of the best writing on this whole question of purpose and direction. Now, mind you, I'm almost six foot one. These guys are tall. The guy on the left is John Mather. He's NASA's senior astrophysicist. He's the 2006 Nobel Prize winner in physics. The guy on the right is Craig Mello. He's the 2006 Nobel Prize winner in medicine and physiology. The reason that they invited me to the Library of Congress is they both read my book, and they were doing a program there called The Origin and Evolution of Life in the Universe. And Craig sent me an email. I said, Michael, come here and get your picture taken with us. I thought it was a fantastic idea. I flew from Phoenix. (laughs) Craig, this is what they said about my book. John Mathers said, The universe took 13.7 billion years to produce this amazing book. I heartily recommend it. <laughs> Folks, as an author, it just does not get any better than that. <laughs> Craig Mello said, The science versus religion debate is over. A must-read for all, including scientists. Now, I don't know if this is going to get me on Oprah or not, right? But I figure it can't hurt. And you know when you go to a movie and before the feature film they have movie trailers, little movie clips? We created an 80-second book trailer. I wanted to share it with you. has created four study guides for groups that want to move through it fast or groups that want to take their time. This is the companion DVD. Uh, I I did a program on this DVD set in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where I did the exact same program on Tuesday night for a group of Christians. On Wednesday night, I gave the exact same program to a group of atheists, agnostics, and free thinkers, and both groups loved the program. I find this encouraging. (laughs) because if we don't if we can't find ways of cooperating across ethnic and religious differences in the next 50 years or so we're in serious trouble as a species questions response feedback yes Yeah, it is. It really is. And you know, there's no guarantee that we're going to make it. I do happen to be hopeful, but I'm not an optimist. As an optimist is somebody who believes it doesn't matter what we do, things are going to get better and better. A pessimist, somebody who believes it doesn't matter what we do, things are going to get worse and worse. You know the word ameliorate? I'm a ameliorist. I believe what we do is going to make a huge difference. There's no guarantee one way or the other, but I do trust chaos. If there's anything I trust, it's chaos. And we are going to have no shortage of chaos in the next 50 years. I'll talk a minute, in a minute, two of the DVDs that I sell are called Beyond Sustainability, an Inspiring Vision of the Next 250 Years, where I focus on what I think we can expect good news and bad news in the next 250 years. Oh, in fact, Tom Atlee is one of the world's leading experts in collective intelligence. He's, he we and I are working together on a book on global integrity, and he's got this great quote. When people ask him how he thinks we're doing as a species, He says, well, it seems to me things are getting better and better and worse and worse, faster and faster. (laughs) Pretty much says it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, we are actually seeing, it's a fact, that the, that the, the time that it took for major evolutionary breakthroughs in the past, it keeps shortening. We keep seeing more and more evolutionary breakthroughs happening, significant evolution, quicker and quicker. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole thing uh, um, called the singularity, which uh, Ray Kurzweil wrote a book about this, which is where we're seeing this happen so quickly that in the next 50 years, we are likely to see computer intelligence exceed human intelligence. And that may be a, a horizon that we can't predict beyond. Now, I'm not trying to hold out hope that that's going to save us, but I think it's going to be an interesting factor. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. again, I'm I'll, I'll talk more in just a few minutes about why I'm hopeful. But um, it doesn't require everybody to have a conversion. See, this is the thing. All it requires in in this country is it requires at least 51% of us to vote into being the need to align self-interest and group interest. Because then greed will actually drive us in the right direction. See, that's the thing. As long as we have to have... Um, constraints, in other words, as long as we have to have systems that basically are about, con- um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're talking about it now in terms of regulations. And as long as we need to regulate, we, don't, we have not yet aligned self-interest and the well-being of the whole. And, and I'm telling Bill Clinton and Al Gore get this. I think Barack Barack Obama, I know, has a copy of the book. I don't know whether he's read it, but I think he gets this as well. The question then becomes, as I said before, how do we get enough of us so that we vote this into being? And I I think that that's going to happen in the next 30, 35 years. I'm I'm giving my life to it. Thank you. Well, tonight, just before I arrived here, I was driving, I was talking with a dear friend of mine, Spencer Burke, who is a, a pastor of a church of 10,000 people, an evangelical megachurch pastor. He totally loves my book. He thinks that this is the most exciting thing that's happening, and he's trying to connect me with other network hubs. He invited me to the Bahamas last year. I was, I was with 125 evangelical ministers in the Bahamas. I've spoken in three evangelical churches, done evening programs in the last year. Now, again, this is a small percentage cons- compared to how many Unitarian Universalist churches. In fact, the last time when I, I was in Dallas... The, um, in fact, the one guy was mentioning this on, the, on the, uh, the, the DVDs. The last time I was in Dallas, I had somebody ask me a question and said, you know, I see that you speak a lot to Unitarian Universalist churches. Why is that? And I said, because that's the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it's the easy pickings when it comes to evolution. <laughs> but I do, I do enjoy speaking to evangelicals. Yeah. I think that's a huge piece. A lot of people are putting distance between themselves and organized religions. And I, and I think some of that... Richard Dawkins and others are writing books, you know, really taking on flat-earth, otherworldly religion and saying, wait a second, this stuff is going to kill us. Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, these new atheists. And I think what they're hitting needs to be hit, which is that the idea of religion is all this unnatural, otherworldly stuff. That's what I call the naturalizing religion. In fact, I wrote, if you look on my website, thankgodrevolution.com the last um, blog that I put up is generating some really interesting conversation among evangelicals and atheists and all, because it's pretty provocative. <laughs> what I, what, the, the title of it is, God is not a supernatural terrorist. <laughs> Because, of course, that's what, the, that's what the new atheists point out, is that our scriptures, the Bible and the Quran, if you take them literally, portray God as an otherworldly terrorist. According to the U.S. Department of Defense definition of terrorism, which is, it's exactly that definition. And so what I'm saying is that we trivialize the notion of God if we interpret it literally. And so what you're pointing to is that people are moving to what's called spiritual, and I think that could be a good thing. Now, some of it also is a little flaky, but...
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, you found those to be core inspiration. That's great. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. Well, there's, there's some really good books coming out that have been out. In fact, if you just put best evolution resources in Google, you'll get my page, and I list the very best books and, 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 and websites that are related, that are the current stuff, not the old stuff. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I know. Exactly. No, no, no. It's, it, it, well, it, it is absolutely a scientific fact that all, not just humans, all gorillas, all chimpanzees, all bonobos, when there's a rise in status, there's a corresponding rise in testosterone. And we know that in the human, what that does is it causes the person to think more about sex and take more risks. Now, I'm going to say something else that's going to be a little bit challenging to anybody who's in relationship to a man. When men, gay or straight, when men are away from their primary partner for even as little as two days, their sperm count doubles. Don't take my word on it. Google it. Check it out yourself. Now, see, knowing this stuff makes it so much easier for me to be an in integrity. I'm a, high, I'm a high testosterone kind of guy right? But I don't find any struggle at all. It's easy for me to stay in integrity. Part of it is I don't try to do it alone. Integrity is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. So for example, when I'm away from Connie, for example, about eight months ago, I was away from Connie for five days. She was in Washington, D.C. I flew to Hawaii. I was going to be in Hawaii for five days. And so I called up four men that are in my life. And I said, hey, listen, I'm going to be away from Connie for the next five days. And I've got a great relationship to my wife. I mean, it's a 10 on a scale of 10. It couldn't be better. And yet I also know my nature. And so when I, so I called these guys up and I said, I'm going to be away from Connie for the next five days. I'm committed to being in impeccable integrity. So I'm going to let you know on Monday when I come back, on a scale of zero to ten, zero meaning I was wildly flirtatious, ten meaning I was impeccably integral, so I'm going to let you know where I was at. And by having that level of support and accountability, it has made it almost effortless for me to be an in integrity. That's why support is such a key piece. I'm saying there's no such thing as an ego. Ego is a word that was given uh, first by Freud to point to this, you know, some of the unconscious dynamics, this, our sense of self. But it's it, the ego. Let's put it this way: ego is no more real than a lizard legacy is. In other words, it's a word that tries to capture this internal dynamic. So it, it is. It's pointing to something that it is real. But I, I'm saying that it's not just ego. It's actually biochemical as well. Um, that's a, that's a different that's a that's a slightly different dynamic. Uh, let's let's talk about that one afterwards because that'll that'll go down another path. Yeah. Um, if you if you want to introduce other people to this perspective, this is the best thing that I know. It's a it's a little twenty minute DVD, but it's a fabulous hook because anybody will sit down. Any of your neighbors will sit down and watch it, and it's very professionally done. It's the best, and this is this is the probably. The mentor of almost all of us in this movement is Father Thomas Berry. He's a 94-year-old, what he calls himself is a geologian. (laughs) And this is the best short collection of articles, interviews, essays, rituals, all kinds of cool stuff. I've got stuff in here, Connie's got stuff in here, our mentors have stuff in here. If you want to get a broad sense of this movement very quickly, I recommend this. If you want to explore this kind of a sacred way of thinking about evolution more deeply, and especially if you want to share this perspective with others very inexpensively, what we most recommend are our DVDs, Uh, and we give you the rights to make copies. You can make as many copies of these as you want for others as you want. Each of these is four hours of our best programs. We have the covers up on the website, so if you have a color printer, you can print off the covers, and you can go to Office Depot or Staples and get blank DVDs very, very inexpensively. And I don't want to take for granted that you all understand this, so let me just say something in case it's not obvious. This does not mean put them in a fire. (laughs) Freely burn, yes. And if you don't know how to burn DVDs, just talk to a teenager. They can all do it. The main program that I delivered for almost three years is the one that I've mentioned here twice. It's on both of these. So there is an overlap. The second two hours of this and the first two hours of this are the same program delivered to different audiences. And it was this program here, Beyond Sustainability, and Inspiring Vision the next 250 years. And the reason that I picked 250 years is because if you compress the history of the universe into 100 years, like if you make 14 billion years equals 100 years, every decade is 1.4 billion years. So our solar system comes into being here, the oceans form here, Bacterial life, and dinosaurs are way up here. So at that time scale, every minute is 250 years. So think about it. If we've got hundred years of trends and patterns and tendencies to study and to learn from, do you think there's a few things that we might be able to say with some degree of certainty about what the next minute might be like? Well, i hope, otherwise we're in serious trouble, and this is a very hopeful perspective. I spent about 40 minutes on this directionality, talking about each of these levels and how this happened. Many people have told me this is the most hopeful material I've offered in the last six years. I compare how the mechanistic paradigm, that is, the idea that nature is like a complex clock, how that came into being, there was a, you know, then there was a 150-year period of scientific and philosophical revolution, a very liberal early enlightenment phase this is where hard liquor was invented conservative backlash chaotic intensive phase and then this forty year period here almost everything changed all the large systems from law to governance to economics made changes in this period huge systemic change and this paradigm that I've been talking about tonight this emergent understanding is going through an almost identical process And if this pattern repeats, which right now there seems to be every evidence that it will, in the next 50 years, I believe we will see the same kind of changes that we saw during this period. I believe we will see a global democratic revolution, an environmental, what I call a biomimicry revolution, that is where we mimic biology rather than mimicking machines, And I believe we will see a worldwide spiritual revival as all the religions come into their greatness as a result of not just tolerating, but wholeheartedly embracing an evolutionary ecological worldview. And then finally, in the next cosmic minute, because that's all we're talking about, is the next minute on the cosmic century timeline. These aren't the challenges that we might have to deal with. We're going to have to deal with these things. And then what are the things that we may or may not have to deal with, but by God, if we have to deal with any of these things, they're going to be huge. This is nuclear, biological, or chemical, or genetic, nanotechnology, or robotic, error or terror. So this is the scary stuff. But I don't leave people there. I say, okay, let's take a square look at the bad news, but then let's take a look at the long-term and the short-term positive trends that we can bank on. We can trust that these trends will continue. In many cases, they've existed lot, much longer than humans have ever existed. And then finally, what's the likely good news? I'm not talking about crossing our fingers and toes and saying, oh, please, 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 please. I'm not saying, let's, let's pray that the, Jesus, the cosmic janitor, comes and cleans up the mess we've made. I mean, what's the likely good news in the next 250 years? And this is very hopeful. And all of that is on both of these DVDs. Now, they also differ. This one here has two other hours, four great gifts of the great story, how this perspective reconciles science and religion, how it transforms our view of chaos and bad news, how it evokes inspiring, empowering visions of the future, and how it broadens our circles of care, compassion, and commitment. What's unique to this one is where I get into all the Christian stuff. And I show the realizing of sin, salvation, the kingdom of God, heaven and hell, Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, y'all, didn't, y'all got a big dose of me, but you didn't get any of Connie. This is three hours and 15 minutes of this is Connie. So it has two of my most popular Unitarian Universalist or liberal sermons. And the rest of this, the other three hours and 15 minutes of it is Connie. She does a 45-minute program called Coming Home to North America. See, being a Native American isn't just having Native American blood. It's a mind and heart set. This is her most popular program of all. We are made of stardust. And then this is the program that I believe she'll be remembered for generations from now. She takes a look at the major sciences and shows how in all these different sciences, death is not only not a problem, death is a blessing. Without, an understanding of de- without death of stars, there could be no planets. There could be no life. Without the, without, an, you know, without the death of plants and animals, there could be no food. Until we grasp that death plays a vital and necessary role in an evolving cosmos, Christianity will continue to be li- limited by unnatural, otherworldly notions of the gospel. Medical technologies will continue to prolong physical and emotional suffering and provoke family discord. And the medical industry will continue to underwrite the widening gap between the rich and the poor. Few things are more important than transforming how we view death. So if you get any of these, please do make copies. And if you are just flat broke, you just don't have no money whatsoever, you just lost your job or whatever, and you really want one of these and you'll make copies for others or you'll loan your copy to others, just pay whatever you can. We just want to get the word out. I'd like to close with a quote. This is from Brian swim. He's the professor of cosmology that I quoted earlier twice. This will give you a sense of why Connie and I live on the road, why we've done so for seven years, permanently traveling North America and why we'll probably do this the rest of our lives. It goes like this. I am convinced that the story of the universe that's emerged out of three centuries of modern scientific work. I am convinced that the story of the universe that's come out of three centuries of modern scientific work will be recognized as a supreme human achievement, the scientific enterprise's central gift to humanity. For the first time in human history, we finally have a creation story that's not tied to one cultural tradition nor to a political ideology but instead gathers every human group into its meanings. We are in the midst of a revelatory experience of the universe that must be compared in its magnitude with those of the great religious revelations and we need only wander about telling this great story to ignite a transformation of humanity. Honey and I've taken that last sentence very literally. Thank you.